0: Welcome back to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. And we're back on our regular podcasting schedule. Listeners wouldn't know it, but we technically took a week off so that you could be a single mom. Yes, true. I think it almost killed you, so I'm <laughs> happy that you're still around.
1: <laughs> what happened that was a great augmentation to the week was I found out about that horrible Momo hoax thing, like the first night my husband was away, which resulted in me like deleting the YouTube app off our Apple TV and staying up all night watching one day at a time because I couldn't sleep.
0: <laughs> I don't know any of the context for how that became a meme or it started to take things by storm. I just saw the resulting pictures and I was like, <laughs> oh wow, okay, this is clearly something that's up my alley, but I can understand <laughs> other people would find it (laughs) horrifying.
1: The picture just terrifies me. Even once I know it's a hoax, it's interesting how that doesn't help. So if our listeners haven't heard, there's this Momo hoax going around that is very upsetting for parents because apparently it's not true, but the myth, the urban legend, the hoax was that this very scary image would appear in the middle of YouTube videos that your kids were watching and then it would tell them to do horrible things like kill themselves. So
0: it's kind of like Slenderman stuff?
1: Yeah, it's basically Slenderman but with a different image basically. And I'll be perfectly honest, I'm not an idiot. It's not that I thought YouTube was being hacked with these images, but like if you're a parent and you spend any time on kids' YouTube, you come across these really, really disturbing like machine-generated videos that are just generated to like produce clicks and um, they are upsetting. Anyway, to me, the disturbing thing is just that there's somebody out there thinking that a hoax like this is something to spread around. Like, that's just as disturbing to me as the hoax itself. So anyway, didn't sleep for a whole night. Did wow. find out that One Day at a Time is a delightful television show and people should be watching it.
0: Yes. So I'll share that. That is fantastic because <laughs> that show is perennially on the verge of being canceled because not enough people watch it because I think they misunderstand what the show is. Or 100%. They... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because I do, it, I did, it's, so it's a Netflix reboot of the sitcom One Day at a Time from the 70s, but it's got like a laugh track in a studio audience and stuff. And the first two episodes I watched, I was like, mm, this is you, laugh yes, track. I but then the once you get into it and you realize they're talking about really serious stuff, PTSD and undocumented migration and like, but they're doing it within this really comfy framework that we're really familiar with it's super clever actually so if you haven't checked it out i recommend it but give yourself a couple of episodes to settle to the format
0: Yeah, particularly in this day and age, the idea of laugh tracks and that canned sitcom kind of feeling, it does feel very antiquated, and I don't think it's what people think they're looking for.
1: Well, and especially not from a Netflix original, right? It really jars you when you first start the episode, or at least it jarred me. I was like, wait, what?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was getting my own PTSD flashbacks to that Ashton Kudger show, The Ranch, which has the same vibe, only it's not well written and not clever and not progressive
1: oh no, oh, I haven't seen that and I now I won't. But One Day at a Time is great, everybody. You should check it out. It's genuinely funny and it has a huge amount of heart and it will help you get over your Momo-related nightmares.
0: Very nice, very nice. <laughs> Is that your homework? Is that what you're sharing this <laughs> week or do you have other things?
1: It's not my homework, although I contemplated for a while making it my homework because I wasn't sure I was going to get to anything else. But I just started reading a book that I do want to tell our listeners about called The Field Guide to the North American Teenager by Ben Felipe. Have you heard of this one, Joe?
0: I have not, but I presume it involves some kind of treasure map and revelations.
1: <laughs> um, Not so far. It's more like a uh, anthropological study of high school, but the reason I wanted to share it with our readers is that um, the author, Felipe, is a New York-based writer and screenwriter born in Haiti and raised in Montreal. Hmm. So yeah, a little bit of Canadian content, and the protagonist is in the same situation. He's arrived in a new high school, except that he's in Austin, Texas, and he's Black and French-Canadian, and he sort of finds himself in the context of the most American of American high schools and so he's cataloging everyone he meets and everything he interacts with and it's fantastic because he's got a really sharp sense of humor the protagonist does and so as he's cataloging things he's like recognizing oh this girl's clearly the manic pixie dream girl of this high school (laughs) yeah so it's super funny super cute and A nice little cross-border bit of humor. It's, I mean, it's Balzer and Bray, so it's published in the States. It's definitely not intended for, you know, an exclusively Canadian audience, but there's lots of little in-jokes. I'm just a couple chapters in. I'm already really enjoying that aspect of it. So Field Guide to the North American Teenager. Strong recommend.
0: Very nice. Yes, I feel like as Canadians, we can always appreciate a little bit of cross-border banter
1: oh my god Do you remember in the 90s when like if canada was mentioned on a u.s sitcom it would be on the news the next day <laughs> we're kind of tragic
0: <laughs> we're just perennially younger brother syndrome like we we so desperately want to be recognized and acknowledged, but please also don't just kind of wrap us up and consider us part of north america or the u.s we are our own people
1: so. it's this is true this is true how about you joe did you do homework this week
0: well i'm doing a bit of a cheat which is to be shocking
1: (laughs) you're my worst student
0: i'm i'm terrible in every way i'm gonna do a plug for a upcoming piece that people can expect on the show so i'm hoping that you also have a copy of this but i received a copy of a book called the beauty of the moment
1: oh i will assume mine is on route i haven't checked the mail yet today
0: oh i see okay So this is by a Canadian author that we're going to be interviewing for the March segment of the podcast. Her name is Tanaz Batina, and it's actually not too dissimilar from what you were just describing so it's about a girl named susan thomas she's indian and she's moved from saudi arabia to canada and her parents want her to become a doctor or an engineer but she secretly wants to become an artist and she falls in love with a boy named malcolm valky and he's like the bad boy student but he's also it says that he has Zoroastrian friends, which I'm not really sure what that means.
1: It's an Iranian religion, I think. There we go. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean the obvious connotation is that they're both outsiders of mm-hmm. a kind mm-hmm. and they meet and they fall in love and their cultural histories inform the nature of their relationship and their family situation and that kind of stuff. So oh. yeah, so that's something I'm gonna be checking out so that we can actually interview Tenez in the near future
1: oh i'm excited about that i remember you telling me about it when we got the pitch and yeah that does sound right up both of our alleys actually Mm
0: -hmm. cool but that is not what we are talking about today that is for the future today we are talking about mortal engines yes
1: Yes. so should i tell people what it's about (laughs) do you like how i'm really smooth i feel like that's (laughs) my strength as a podcaster my smoothness
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. you flow and you ebb quite nicely (laughs) into the transitions. (laughs) So Brenna, what make you of the mortal engine? I can't even call it the mortal engines. It's mortal engines.
1: It's just mortal engines. So I've been teasing Joe a lot because Joe's always concerned that we're doing too many books back-to-back that are like too similar and here we've done the Mortal Instruments and we're like turning around within a couple of weeks to give you the Mortal Engines.
0: And they share a cast member in the movies.
1: (laughs) They share a cast member, they share an antagonist's name, but allegedly they are different books. Um, So Mortal Engines is the first of four novels by Philip Reeve that make up well four novels, a quartet Brenna, they make up a quartet. The book focuses on this kind of alternate history, revised version of the universe. what are we, about a thousand years in the future or something? Yeah, it's
0: meant to be about a thousand years.
1: So we're post-apocalyptic and the idea is that London, which is where we start our story, as in the city of London, is now a giant machine that is basically moving around, eating smaller cities that are also machines. And so it's got this very steampunk vibe. Anyway, so that's the setting. Our protagonist is a guy named Tom. Well, sort of. I think the protagonist is Hester, but whatever. Anyway, so the protagonist is this guy named Tom Natsworthy. He's an apprentice historian. That's not a great position to be in. Like, historians are not particularly well-respected of the different kind of casts of professions in this society. And being an apprentice of anything is not great and on top of that he's like a third class apprentice so he's doing the garbage labor of his society.
0: Yeah he's very low on the totem pole.
1: Yeah and he has been orphaned and when the book opens the sort of first conflict that happens is London eats a small town and in the sort of tumult of taking on board the refugees and stripping this town for parts an assassin a teenaged assassin gets on board her name is hester and she's trying to kill valentine who is the head of the historians and tom prevents her from assassinating his boss because he really loves valentine and has a crush on valentine's daughter so he prevents hester from assassinating valentine but in the process he gets thrown off london by Valentine because Valentine he has seen something he has seen too much so he doesn't really understand what he has seen and that is the conflict yes. that opens the story so Tom for the first time in his life is not on a moving city but instead left on what they call the hunting grounds with Hester who is furious with him because he has stopped her opportunity to assassinate Valentine and yeah that's where the book opens So Mm -hmm. over the course of the narrative, what we learn is that Hester is also an orphan that indeed Valentine killed her parents and stole a really important piece of what they call old tech. They're really, as a society, trying to rebuild some of the technological things that existed in, well, effectively now. Um, And so one of the things that they're kind of obsessed with, or at least the engineers are obsessed with, is the weaponry of the societies that would have existed in the 1900s and 2000s. And this progresses with Hester and Tom on the run from people who are trying to kill them. And also they're trying to make their way back to London to unmask Valentine. Hester still wants to kill him. Tom just wants to kind of put all the pieces together and figure out what's going on. But what we learn is that this tech that Valentine had stolen is going to be used as not really a doomsday device, but I guess it's effectively like a nuclear weapon, right? It's going to destroy this wall that exists to keep people who have chosen to live in non-moving settlements safe.
0: Mm -hmm. And the anti-traction league. Yes.
1: Yes. So there's like a movement of people who are against this consumptive process of cities moving. I mean, in a big way, the book is a metaphor for colonization and how— Troubled and violent and cruel and ultimately serving of only a few moneyed interests, the whole process of colonization is. And also I think the book is making a pretty stark commentary on what happens when scientific progress becomes divorced from the humanities, when we stop listening to people who maybe have more ethical or critical takes on scientific progress and instead let it run amok. Oh my
0: gosh. Why do you have to do that? <laughs> it's just a fun action book.
1: <laughs> Said every student Brenna's ever had. <laughs> Stop <laughs> ruining things with your words. Well, it's
0: interesting. Okay, so I'm not sure how deep down the rabbit hole you went in your research on this, if at all. None.
1: Zero. Nothing.
0: Okay. So I discovered this book a long time ago, and then I found out that it was being picked up and optioned as a film by Peter Jackson. So that's what made me want to seek it out. And
1: actually, that's a good point, because I don't think we mentioned. This book came out in 2001. It's not a recent title by any stretch of the imagination.
0: No, although I do also have a point to make about that (laughs) later. But the interesting thing to me about the book is... So Philip Reeve is, I gather, not unlike some other authors that we may have covered or will cover in the future. He didn't set out to write young adult literature. He planned on writing adult literature, and his manuscript was rejected numerous times, and it wasn't until somebody said maybe you could distill this down and make it a little bit more palatable as a YA property and that's when he all of a sudden got it published and it turned into this quartet of books called the Hungry City Chronicles. So there's a lot of adult ideas that are encapsulated in these Mm -hmm. books but they've been maneuvered and reworked. And the other interesting thing is that you said you know, our time as in now or the 1900s, because originally he was going to write this as a turn of the 20th century text.
1: Okay, that's really interesting. So, more like an alternate history steampunk as opposed to post apocalyptic steampunk. Yes, then. but he
0: found that it was actually too difficult and it would take him too long to try to explain and set up the alternate history. So, he just said, you know what, let's just set it in the future after everything has been kind of reduced to rubble.
1: Oh, interesting. Mm
0: hmm. Huh. So your, your instincts when you were reading it are not wrong. You're definitely picking up on some of the things that I think probably got flattened out a touch in the editing and publication process, but that's definitely where he was coming from originally.
1: Yeah, I definitely think the, um, we need the humanities to balance scientific progress is stronger as a thematic message than the conversation about colonization and colonial power, which I think is a bit more muddy, but he's clearly playing with England's history and London's role in the world in the past and what that might look like in a post-apocalyptic future.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I'm trying to think of how many texts we've read that are not geographically set in North America. It's interesting to have a completely different perspective about a world power, right? Like, in the book, London is a really dominant force. Like, there's only one other city in the book that becomes a threat to it in this uh, municipal Darwinism, is what Mm. they call it, when Mm. the cities eat each other. But for the most part, London is the driving factor. They are trying to reshape the new world order by going after the Anti Traction League in this fictional wonderland called Batmonk Goompa.
1: Oh, right. Batmonk Goompa. Right.
0: Which, of course, is also populated very distinctively, I think, by othered and racialized people. Mm-hmm. So that's where your colonization piece comes in very strongly.
1: Well, and even also the fact that they refer to this as municipal Darwinism, right? Like Darwinism became a major and wildly misunderstood force for the colonial project Mm -hmm. and the idea that like, well, might makes right is, as I say, a wild misunderstanding of what Darwin was trying to talk about, but it often has been co-opted for that purpose. And so we see that here too, which was the first thing that made me think, oh, I see, we've got something a little bit more going on here. And Mm -hmm. also the fact that the whole book is oriented East, like London is moving East, right? Which is uh, not dissimilar to a lot of colonial projects for the UK, whether they be in India. That imagery of London versus the Indian subcontinent is really strong. Mm -hmm. And the anti-traction league is predominantly made up of, yeah, racialized individuals who are standing up against London's aggression. But also this post-apocalyptic world is sort of a post-American empire, Like America destroyed itself in that 60 Minutes War that brought about the apocalypse.
0: Mm -hmm. It's actually called the Wasteland now, which I thought was very (laughs) hilarious. If you were a European or if you were someone who is maybe not so fond of the U.S., Mm -hmm. you'd be like, oh yeah, they just burned themselves out. They're idiots.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and there is a huge amount of that, this idea that arming themselves and becoming increasingly violent. Basically what happens is the world engages in a war of such violence that geologic shift happens, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, America is basically gone. And so all they have is Europe, some of Asia, some of North Africa, Antarctica and the Arctic. And everything about North America is just kind of over. There are small strongholds of people, but it's basically destroyed itself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that orientation East and that anxiety, there's a huge amount of anxiety for people who live in the traction cities about what goes on in the sort of still world, for lack of a better term, like people who, whose communities don't move. Like there's all this language around sort of barbarism and savagery that gets hurled at both sides. And so mm-hmm. we have this a uh, really clear sense of how easily humans come to misunderstand each other and also what the sort of ravages and violence of movements like colonialism due to the people who are who are on the margins of it.
0: And as much as I was being facetious and, you know, complaining that you ruin a simple adventure text, <laughs> it should be noted that this stuff is clear as day if you're looking for it, but it's also very easy to simply read this as a bit of a swashbuckler. Kind Definitely. Kind of old-fashioned text. And that was actually the other piece that I wanted to bring up is I am persistently surprised every time that I learned that this was published in 2001 because to me this reads like a text maybe from the 1980s or the early 90s back yeah. before the kind of YA revolution turned it into more of what we currently know it to be.
1: So my parents are both English, and I grew up spending a lot of time in the UK, and also just having a lot of books and taking in a lot of culture <laughs> that was predominantly in the UK. And oh my the... gosh, you're
0: so well-rounded. And yes, like I... we know you watched you watched Coronation Street. <laughs>
1: Number one, I still do. Number two, (laughs) unlike most Canadians, I'm exposed to not two dominant white cultures, but three. Anyway, um, but what I was gonna say is that this story reminded me so much of the adventure stories that I read as a kid. Mm-hmm. that yeah. came from my grandparents, like that they would buy me or that I would pick up when I was over there. It's paced very much like a typical British children's action story. Like, mm-hmm. and that's a very tradition. short
0: chapters. Yeah,
1: very short chapters. It's a tradition that goes back to like Swiss Family Robinson, you know, that kind of young person in a situation where they are thrown to their own devices and the action moves really quickly and... Mm-hmm. The fights are, I don't know, there's something about the fights. There's not a lot of lingering on like the violence or the gore. It's really about sort of the action and the excitement.
0: Yeah, which is impressive considering this book has a massive body kill.
1: Yeah, it does.
0: Like people are getting murdered left and right on this and it's kind of like, well, they're dead. Let's move on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I totally did not realize how many people die until I watched the movie. (laughs) I really didn't. Yeah. Because a lot of them are kind of like passed over, right? And it's I think that's why off the top I was telling Joe that I found the film so much darker than the book. And I think that has a lot to do with this style that Reeves is using, which is, as I say, typical of English adventure stories for kids that really lets you kind of not realize so many people are dying. hmm
0: <laughs> If you're thinking about cinematic language this is very much like the serials that might have opened a film so think about indiana jones type action where there is wanton death and destruction amidst all the chaos of the adventure but it kind of gets glossed over because there's always something new to be moving on to like people are never staying still For any period of time. Like they're constantly jumping from traction cities to smaller cities to parasols and that kind of stuff. So people are just always on the go. And as a result, it doesn't resonate or it doesn't sink in, rather, that people are just getting murdered and run over. And, you know, if you think about even just the logistics of a city consuming another city. The process Mm -hmm. of capturing it of ingesting it of breaking it down for parts like there will be wholesale groups of people who are just casually murdered as a result Mm -hmm. but it makes it seem exciting and because our characters are often the ones like trying to run and escape and get around that kind of stuff it seems more like fun than it is a terrible event
1: (laughs) well and i think too in addition to that again very typical of this genre the perspective changes with every chapter so every chapter is from someone else's point of view we rarely have back-to-back chapters from the same perspective Mm -hmm. and as a result of that you never see consequence right because typically whatever slow moments of contemplation might happen we're not watching them we've already moved on to a new character and different character to see what's happening with them
0: so we should probably clarify it so there's really four main characters in this book so there's tom who Mm -hmm. often ends up getting the bulk of the perspective chapters when Mm -hmm. he and hester are on the run hester's the Mm -hmm. other person it's a very male book in this way it's It's like such a male book tom's perspective and then we hear from hester or we hear from anna fang who is the head of the anti-traction unit so we're still getting their perspective but we're not hearing their internal dialogue in the way that we do with tom
1: which is frustrating because Tom's boring.
0: Tom is so boring.
1: Tom is boring. And Reeves, I think, makes a mistake here because Hester is the one who has an arc. Mm -hmm. Hester is the one who is interesting. Hester is the one who experiences tremendous character growth. Hester is the one whose traumatic history involves the action of the text. Mm -hmm. So why she is not our central focalizer makes zero sense to me because she's 100% the protagonist, even if Reeves doesn't know it.
0: Yeah, it's a very strange creative decision because you almost feel that battle of wills Hester is obviously the more interesting character but she's also grouchy and unlikable Mm -hmm. and a bit of a Mm -hmm. bitch sometimes which Mm -hmm. are all code words for oh you can't have her as a protagonist (laughs) so we need to have (laughs) this bland milk guy and (laughs) to be fair to Tom he gets an arc but it's very much that awakening arc where he thought that the world was rosy and then he discovers oh wow there's a caste system that's unfair and oh wow we're colonialists and that's not great and oh wow this typically villainous man who's like straight white powerful (laughs) yep murdering women murdering others like shockingly enough not a good guy and that's tom's arc and i think that's a bit more of a facile digestible arc hester's is the one that would require more work to make it work but she's also Mm -hmm. just that much more interesting
1: so much more interesting so sorry you only got to two of the main characters
0: So Tom and Hester, because they've been kicked off of London, they spend the entire rest of the book trying to get back to it or to come back into contact with it. So the other two... Arguable main characters are Catherine, who is Valentine's daughter. And she has a very similar arc to Tom, except that she's doing all of that while still staying on London. So she idolizes Mm -hmm. her father. She thinks he's a great adventurer. She's constantly waiting for him to come back because he's gone off to run errands, which of course we learn is subterfuge and violence and all these other terrible things. And then she falls in with a... Is he an apprentice engineer? Bevo? Yes, he is. Okay, yeah. so the other the fourth main character is Bevo and he works kind of in the sludgery lower bottom sections of London doing some of the gross labor work and he's tied into a storyline that we've not even touched yet which is this idea of resurrected men and I think Mm -hmm. part of the reason it doesn't come up is because this is the weirdest subplot in both the book and the film Mm -hmm. so it's this idea that once upon a time dead men were revived via machinery And they were turned into unstoppable killing machines. Yeah, Terminator.
1: They just look like Terminator. They look exactly like Terminator in the movie. (laughs) 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 They're called the Lazarus League, I think. Lazarus something. And um, it's this idea that, yeah, they'd be unstoppable killing machines, but they are also men. I'm not sure what the advantage was supposed to be to that. But it gives us an interesting character in the character of Shrike who is tasked with hunting down and destroying Hester. But what we learn about Shrike is that somehow in spite of the processes that are supposed to have destroyed this aspect of him, he retains something of a memory for a time when he was a father. Mm -hmm. And so he attempts to kind of parent a child version of Hester who he finds near drowned. And then ultimately she betrays him to try to kill valentine to try to pursue the killers of her parents so he is now on the hunt for her because he's been told that if he brings back her body she will be turned into another lazarus league soldier like him and then he'll have her forever Mm
0: -hmm. yes and this is another one of those plot lines that seems a little bit (sighs) It seems like one plot line too many to be stuffed into this particular book. Mm -hmm. Shrike is an interesting character. I actually feel like he's a bit more successfully handled in the film. But it also still kind of feels like, why do we need all of this extra stuff? Apart from, oh, now we've got a character who's on the hunt for Tom and Hester to kind of keep pushing them forward because they've got someone on their tail the whole time. I can't give you spoilers to say that the idea of resurrected men comes into play with one of the characters from the book in the second book. So it is laying some necessary groundwork for a successive chapter, but as a result, it does sometimes feel like, why are we doing this? You know, do we need to know that the doctor who's also working this Medusa doomsday machine is also busy at work turning dead engineers into resurrected men? And it's kind of like,
1: meh. Not
0: really, but I guess it's interesting and in there, so, sure.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, to me, Shrike is a more interesting antagonist than Valentine ends up being. Because mm-hmm. I think Valentine is particularly badly done in the movie, actually. like.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: there is no complexity to valentine so in the book valentine is torn between serving the lord mayor who he feels an allegiance to and also being the man his daughter believes him to be and those two things are completely like you can't be both those things in the context of this world and so that pull is really important to valentine's the what arc he gets in the book whereas in the film it's just like this is a bad guy <laughs>
0: Well, in the film, and maybe this is a good point, we can just... Let's introduce the yeah, film. good idea. And then we can talk about both. 60 minutes is all it took to bring humanity to the very brink of extinction. Mankind mobilized. A new age arose. The age of the great predator cities. Survival of the fastest.
1: For my mother. Stop her!
0: Oh. Oh.
1: Tom! Ask him why he murdered my mother.
0: I'm sorry you had to hit her. You won't stop until I'm dead.
1: Unless you kill her first. I want them found!
0: Okay, so the film is from 2018. And as I mentioned off the top, it was originally optioned by Peter Jackson. I think a lot of people took that to mean that he was going to direct it. And maybe at one point he thought he would. But he ultimately ended up handing over the reins to his FX guru from King Kong, a man named Christian Rivers. And he and his wife... Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens ended up writing the screenplay so we are firmly in the Hobbit trilogy mm-hmm. world in terms of bloated screenplay texts mm-hmm. uh, which is part of the reason why this film I feel ultimately does not succeed although I will maintain that it does have some interesting things to say and do but uh, Overall, it did not receive favorable scores at all. And the screenplay and the bloatedness of the story and its kind of somewhat incomprehensibleness mm-hmm. was one of the things that was most often cited as the problem of the film.
1: It's a weird thing with the film because. I mean, we've been having these conversations around like narrative changes that have to happen for a film to be successful. But I actually think where the film gets into trouble often is where it does feel the need to change the order of events and they become really messy. I was saying off the top to Joe that Anna Fang's character gets widely and wildly rewritten for the film to make her a more... Sort of action figure, a more, even more sort of swashbuckly, brave, adventurous woman, yes. uh, which in some ways could be admirable, except that the end result is just, I found the scenes that she's in completely incoherent as a result because I didn't understand what was happening. The book is not perfect and there's certainly a lot that could have been excised for a a much tighter, tidier film, Mm -hmm. but that's not the direction the screenwriters went. No. They blew stuff up that didn't need to be expanded on and Mm -hmm. they made changes that seemed utterly incomprehensible to me. I was watching it and I just frequently was thinking, okay, but why, why?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well maybe why don't we begin this discussion we'll pick up the thread that you initially proposed maybe just by talking about some of the big changes because there's a couple of quite large changes in the translation sure one of them that you've already hinted at which is the change in valentine's motivation so in the book valentine is still a historian and he's all about trying to do the right thing by the city but also by his daughter And as you mentioned, those are two very different things. So his daughter admires him. She idolizes him as this almost mythical historian who has gone out all around the world in search of this old tech. And he's really the one who's preserving the past, but also being like a very public figure who can inspire the masses. Whereas the reality is that he's somebody's henchman, and he's gone out to get this old tech they can use to destroy other places, because if not, the city of London is about to die. So he's really the person who fabricated this doomsday device.
1: And what's interesting about him in the book is that he doesn't realize he's a henchman until it's too late, right? Like, he thinks that he's been sort of serving the interests of history, and... As the novel progresses, way too late, like at the end of the book, he realizes, oh, hell's bells. (laughs)
0: Yeah, like, oops, I'm somebody's lackey, and I'm really not as clever as I thought I am.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes him really interesting. Sorry, I'll go on, I'll let you talk about how he exists in the film.
0: I mean, it's like a big old shrug. He's just the most (laughs) generic villain in the film.
1: With the worst hair. Can we talk about the hair? What? What?
0: So in the film, he's played by Hugo Weaving, which is another direct tie into the Peter Jackson universe, right? Of course, he's been involved in all of the Hobbit films, all the Lord of the Rings films. And it's Hugo Weaving, like he's a fantastic, probably still considered character actor, but he often shows up in these heavy roles and he lends it a bit of gravitas, but often they're very underwhelmingly written. And in this case, Valentine is nothing. Like he's not doing anyone's bidding. He's not morally nuanced or complicated he pulls a coup and we're not exactly sure why he ends Mm -mm. up even having to do that nope he's just been working on all these projects in secret and then he takes over and kills a bunch of people and his daughter's like boo i hate you and he's like "Hmm." (laughs) Like it's a very shrug worthy like this is the man that we're supposed to be rooting for the death of, and also his death is pathetic it's really just so bad in the movie yep yeah and the hair's not great the facial (laughs) hair is okay but the top hair is not
1: the haircut is so i'm a villain in a british movie (laughs)
0: like it's Mm -hmm.
1: aggressively so
0: yeah so some other big 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 changes from the book to the film there's an entire sequence in the book where tom and hester end up getting trapped and almost sold into slavery and that little thread gets carried through in the film but in the film they actually then get sold at a slave auction and that's where we get the introduction of anna fang Mm -hmm. whereas in the book that never actually comes to pass they end up talking their way out And Tom's genteel sort of nobility angle ends up coming into play, and they end up befriending the mayor of this little town.
1: Is that the kind of pirate mayor guy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a town that was taken over by pirates called Tunbridge Wheels, and they end up befriending the mayor of this town, Chrysler Peavy. And it's an interesting piece because it's very much coming back to this idea that there's hierarchies on the cities as well as within the entire idea of municipal Darwinism. Mm-hmm. And he's very much this guy who wants to be higher than his cast. So he began as a pirate, and then he became a mayor through coercion and influence. But he recognizes that he's lowly and uneducated. So he actually uses Tom to try to instill manners and process into him and his crew. But of course, that ends up running afoul when they end up crashing the city. Yeah. <laughs> But that whole sequence ends up getting completely removed from the film so that we can just have this weird slavery auction sequence.
1: Well, and what's disappointing about that in terms of character development is that it's true that Tom is completely toast throughout the book, but mm-hmm. in those scenes, he's able to show some utility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he doesn't even have that in the film. Like he doesn't even have that level of utility, which makes him a much even less interesting character in the film version I found.
0: I mean, the big problem with Tom in the film is that he plays that role of the disbelieving doubter. So he's along for the ride, but the whole time he's just like, oh, Valentine's not that bad. London's not that bad. And then at the end of the film, we're meant to believe that he becomes this huge hero who's capable of flying planes and being a rebel, like a war rebel to the stars in a way. And it just doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic, but it feels very traditional.
1: Like his growth into that role is deeply predictable in the book, but at least it exists. (laughs) Whereas in the film, you just know that that's going to happen because he's a young male lead in a film like this, but you're never given any reason to believe that it's true.
0: Yes, and this is probably also the time to acknowledge that the character of Tom in the film is played by Robert Sheehan, who is now making his third appearance in four weeks on this podcast. So we are officially changing the name of the podcast (laughs) to... Robert Sheehan stands.
1: <laughs> and we will only be talking
0: about Robert Sheehan from now on. <laughs> it's disappointing that we're ending the run. He is not showing up in any future texts that we know of, but it's disappointing that we're ending this one because he, yeah, this is by far his least interesting role out of the three that we've touched on.
1: Go check him out in Umbrella Academy and maybe not so much this one.
0: Yes, yes. By far, Umbrella Academy is number one, followed by the Mortal Instruments, followed by this one? Will we say that's the order?
1: That's painful. But yeah, can I say something I really liked about the movie?
0: No, I will only hear terrible things about this (laughs) movie. No, I'm... Yes. What did you like about the movie? It's so rare for you to talk about anything that you like from <laughs> these action-adventure movies.
1: I know, and I'm trying to stay on brand, but I actually really, really liked... So not all of the visual effects work particularly well, and some of them are quite bad for a movie this expensive with these particular creative minds behind it.
0: Mm-hmm. In case you were wondering, it's $100 million to make this movie, and it made 82 worldwide
1: yeah and like for 100 million you expect it to be pretty flawless on the cg and sometimes it's really not but one thing i think it did really well was the traction cities themselves
0: Mm -hmm. they're quite
1: magnificent especially london london gave me these amazing like mad max vibes yes
0: yes and
1: actually all the traction cities did and it's interesting because once i saw them i was like oh yeah obviously mad max but the book doesn't give you any mad max sensibility about the construction i didn't find but watching it on screen especially london there's this shot where london is coming over a ridge and like all of these buildings that you know because you've seen pictures of london are like haphazardly stacked upon this war machine Mm -hmm. and there's the park on the roof like the sort of centerpiece of the city is this park and like i gotta tell you it was pretty incredible because i was I turned it on and I was already annoyed because I was like, Joe has assigned me another two hour and 10 minute movie. I'm really yeah, mad. Right. <laughs> but the, that opening, that first shot we have of London really kind of sold me on the visual world. Yeah. Which is hard to do, right? Because my tagline for the book is really interesting premise, mediocrely executed. Okay. And so I really didn't want to, I didn't know what I was going to think of the actual cities, but they're really beautifully executed in the film
0: yeah and you're you're dead on if there's a reason to see this movie it is long it's bloated it's filled with stereotypical characters but honestly it is worth checking out solely for that opening chasing. It's Mm -hmm. an extended sequence. It does a very effective job of introducing you not just to this idea of moving cities that gobble each other up, but it also does a fairly adequate job of introducing Hester and Tom and Valentine and Catherine all in a very quick order so that you get this idea of how does the history intersect with this idea of a city on wheels and there's still the hierarchy of power in the different roles and then the film loses a ton of energy the minute that yeah. Tom and Nestor get kicked <laughs> off of the city. <laughs> which so is true. to be a little bit expected, right? Because that's where the character development starts to come into play. But mm-hmm. that opening sequence really is magnificent. And not surprisingly enough, if you go back and watch the trailer for this movie most of the trailer is actually cut (laughs) from that scene. So they're very much selling you on this idea of look at famous historical parts of London crammed together onto a giant gobbly machine on wheels.
1: Which is, you know, in fairness, really cool, but not enough. Not for two hours. (laughs) Not for two hours and 10 minutes. It's the last 10 minutes often where I'm just like, are you kidding? Am I still doing this? What is Mm -hmm. happening to my life? Can I talk about something I didn't like about the movie? Absolutely. I think that this movie made the same mistake that City of Bones made, which is it focused more on getting actors who are hot than who can fulfill the needs of the character. And I'm thinking specifically about the way Hester is made up. (laughs) And then I'm thinking about Bevis. I'm going to start with Bevis because I think Hester is an obvious problem. But Bevis is supposed to be... So, the engineers, especially the engineers who work in the gut, they maintain, like, basically the sewer system of this moving traction city. Correct trying to extract as much nutrient and usefulness back out of waste, but they also have the role of controlling the prison gangs who do the actual labor. So anyone who's been arrested, or I don't even think you need to be convicted in this community, no, <laughs> for things like petty theft or speaking ill of the Lord Mayor, you get sent down to the gut to do this horrific labor where you die and get, turned into more machines later apparently but as a result that work means that all the apprentice engineers are fed this chemical it makes all of their hair fall out Mm -hmm. right like they're they're completely smooth so they can be sanitized at the end of every shift
0: And it's also like a million degrees, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And they also, and oh God, even though it's a million degrees, they are wearing like these rubber coats. Everybody in the engineering division wears these like white rubber coats. Yeah,
0: I completely forgot about the rubber coats until I did the reread. And then I was like, oh, I'm getting weird Mad Max meets The Matrix, but also like... I couldn't help but picture like albinos, like really thin emaciated albinos.
1: But for good reason, right? We're told over and over again in the book that because of Bevis's work, he doesn't see the sun, right? He's down in the gut all the time. He is maintained for his role and so is everyone else. Your caste is defined by your employment and you exist solely to fill that role in this society. But of course, they're not going to have like, a hairless dude play the love interest for Valentine, or for Valentine's daughter. So a Better instead, movie if it's- better Would be a be better movie, fair. So instead, he's just a generic hot Irish guy.
0: Yes, and if people don't know who he is, I can't remember his name and I don't feel Ronan like... Rafferty. There we go. And if people have seen the most recent Harry Potter prequel, oh. he plays Langdon Shaw in the Fantastic Beaks... Fantastic Beaks <laughs> prequel? No. he plays. I Langansh-
1: would 100% watch the Fantastic Beaks movie. <laughs> it's just a lot of really nice beaks. <laughs> it's
0: like a Richard Attenborough documentary. <laughs> Okay. Heep. <laughs> oh. Ooh. Bear with me. Here we go again. Okay. <laughs> So he plays Langdon in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them sequel. And he's the brother of Eddie Redmayne's character. So he's kind of the alternate love interest that Eddie Redmayne's character is fighting with. So he's like gorgeous, beautiful, blonde hair, CW levels attractiveness in the movie, which is just ridiculous. It is. He's a male model.
1: <laughs> he's a male model. And he completely destroys this notion of people being shaped and controlled by the city apparatus for the role that they fill like what's important in the book is that every single individual is literally a cog in this literal machine Mm -hmm. right
0: yeah they exist only to serve that function and their individuality is completely immaterial
1: and so you don't get any of that as a result of bevis being crazy hot so that's the first problem but he's so
0: hot He's (laughs) so hot, Brenna. Isn't it more important to have attractive people to look at for two hours and ten minutes?
1: I mean, this is what we learned from City of Bones, right? That clearly saves the movie. But the other problem is Hester Shaw. So we didn't say this, but when (laughs) when Valentine kills Hester's parents, she sees him and she tries to intervene and he turns around to, to stop her and he disfigures her. Like her face is so disfigured that she holds I mean, she has like a shawl that she wears over her face or she holds hands over her face. She doesn't allow anyone to see her face.
0: Mm -hmm. Like she has no nose and she's missing most of the flesh on one side of her face.
1: Yes. And which is part of the reason why she feels this weird affinity for Shrike, even as he's trying to kill her, because she feels in many ways like she is already halfway to what Shrike is. Yes. In the film, she has a scar on her cheek. Mm -hmm. She
0: sure does. (laughs) And we're talking like, okay, it's not a little scar, but it's also it's the kind of scar that you might accrue if you were in a hockey accident and you (laughs) got like a a stick in the face or something like that
1: joe that was very canadian
0: i know (laughs) i didn't even think about it until i said it and i was like is anyone else gonna get this it's okay (laughs) most of our listening audience is from north america
1: (laughs) but i mean it's a it's a scar but it's not disfiguring like it's not even pink it's the same color as her flesh yeah and yes she wears a really beautiful silk scarf over her nose and mouth in the film but like she goes long stretches without obscuring her face or feeling any compunction about her face whereas in the book literally everyone who meets her reminds her that she's deucedly ugly like every single person who meets her
0: well i think it's it's really symptomatic of the film's inability to it's very afraid to pull punches yes so is that the right way of saying or
1: it pulls too many punches
0: thank you yes it's afraid of being even remotely oh my gosh it really is mortal instruments isn't it Mm -hmm. it's afraid to be confrontational or to go for something a little bit risky because one of the other things I had completely forgotten about is the fact that both Catherine and Bevis die in the book yes unceremoniously
1: pretty yeah I mean Bevis especially it's like he's gone and she's and she's like well I gotta keep moving towards this whole stopping my dad from killing society thing
0: yeah (laughs) In a way, he's very much a cog in the machine, even in death, right? Like, he's a step in order to get Catherine closer to stopping her father. And it's like, well, I can't stop. I've got to keep going. So sorry that you're dead.
1: And then Catherine sacrifices herself to save Hester.
0: Mm -hmm. Cut to the movie. And we've got Anna Fang sacrificing herself to save Hester. Bevos, can you even tell me what happens to him?
1: I could not. I could not. If you said you would send me a $100 gift card to Sephora right now, I could still not conjure up what happens to that character.
0: Yeah, and you know why? It's because the screenplay literally forgets about him. (laughs) So he's like, I don't think we should go up there when they're investigating what's happening in the dark secret realms of the engineering building there. And she's like, okay, go back down. I'm going to press on. That is literally the last we see of him. He is oh never God, right. mentioned or seen <laughs> again.
1: You're completely right.
0: Instead, she gets to be the white savior when mm. the town is run aground. And she then gets to... Oh, it's so uncomfortable. So we talked about how the people of Boom Guba, Gooba, Booba Gooba, whatever the place is called... Every time I had to read it, I was like, why? Like, it's I just know. like, why not just say, over the hill in racialized Otherville?
1: <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so true.
0: But in the film, they basically broken through the wall, which also makes no sense to me, because why were people ever living on that wall? It's like yeah. the literal thing that protects you. It would be the one place that people would try to get in if they were going to come into that city. Yep. And yet you're living on on it I digress it's basically been destroyed at this point And the people of London have to leave London because it's no longer a traction city. It's completely decimated. It can't move. So all these people from London have to come. And then it's like a weird religious odyssey. Like they're climbing up the rubble of the broken shield wall. And there's a man who kind of looks like the Hare Krishna or like a Buddhist monk. And he's the leader of the city. And he's projected with the dawn coming up behind him. And he's like reaching his hand out to this really super generic white girl. Which, yep i don't know
1: i found that whole scene so so incoherent that's kind of
0: gross and, and gross
1: Ugh. oh and again this is another thing reeves isn't savvy enough to know that hester should be the protagonist of his story and the filmmakers here aren't savvy enough to realize that Catherine doesn't have to be the protagonist just because she's the beautiful white lady
0: because Newsflash, not more interesting in the movie.
1: Not more interesting.
0: She's not interesting in the book, particularly, but everyone's also younger in the yes. book. Yes, Like demonstrably, like 14 years old, kind of yep. young.
1: Which makes... Yeah,
0: it makes sense.
1: And it makes more their struggles more compelling, I think, because they are children, and we're constantly reminded that they're children.
0: Yeah. Contrast that with the film. Like always, this is 20-something people playing...
1: Mm-hmm. But I think they're olds. yeah,
0: they're 18, it's got to be.
1: Yeah.
0: <sighs> oh man. You know, I went into this discussion kind of liking this movie you more did. on a second you told me. watch and now <gasps> I'm kind of no, this movie's just a bit of a hot mess. I think it part was. of the problem is that so often it mistakes Slowness with character development, but then it also says, Well, we've done too much of that and we're going to lose our target audience. So we need to have explosions and chase sequences. And yes, like the scene where Shrike attacks them when Anna Fang gets them from the slave auction in the film, there's this whole sequence which it's effectively introducing Shrike and Hester's relationship because she sees him and she's like, Oh, God, him. What is he doing here? Why is he trying to kill me? It plays out very differently in the book, but here it's just, okay, well, now that we've done this, let's have a giant action sequence with huge wheels and jumping and pulling Mm -hmm. on cords and shooting and cutting. And you're just like, but why?
1: Yeah, and apparently the power to drop a knife, like what, 20 feet through the air and still catch it on the handle? Mm -hmm. It's pretty impressive. impressive. Stuff like that annoyed me. Part of it was because I didn't buy the age up because their motivations are the same as in the book for the most part mm-hmm. So you age them up half a decade They go from being 13 and 14 to 18 and 19 and yet their motivations and views on the world have not become more complex or interesting
0: Just kind of makes them seem stupid
1: It does and so it was hard for me to be like I'd be like yeah 14 year olds not gonna catch that night. Oh wait, he's not 14. He's 18. Oh wait, he's 18 Like it was <laughs> mm-hmm. you know a co- that constant game in my head Anyway, are we done? I think we're done,
0: Joe. <laughs> You're like, I'm done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing more to say to you. Uh,
0: this is fair. <laughs> you know what? I I will allow it.
1: I do have some bingos. I actually thought about them ahead of time for the first time in months. Excellent.
0: Okay. Tell me what you got. Bingo! Not a good bingo.
1: For the book, less for the movie, but for the book, I think of all the people like functioning in the town as child soldiers, effectively. Yeah. I would just be repeating everything I just said about Bevis. But so I think child soldiers and also obviously dead parents. Dead parents everywhere. Just just the place is littered with dead parents.
0: Yeah. There's no such thing as a normal family except no. for Catherine and Valentine. And of course, that's proven to be the most duplicitous, poisoned relationship yes. of all. Yep. More so, I think, in the movie than... In the book.
1: Oh, yeah. Because in the book, I really do believe that he loves her. He's just an idiot. Like, he really doesn't see how much he has been the Lord Mayor's pawn. Whereas in the or in the movie, sorry, he's just evil. Like, boring level evil.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's see. I had Frenemies because oh, Tom yeah. and Hester don't like each other a huge amount. No. Uh, we've got A Touch of Redemptive Arc.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, I see that. Well, stronger in the book than in the movie, but yes. yes. I'll buy it.
0: And... This one is an open interpretation, but we've got 90s callback on here. And it's not specifically to the 90s, but like if we're thinking about...
1: The 1890s steampunk? (laughs) No, it
0: was uh, more so in the film, that moment in the opening sequence where they're talking about how when the city goes on the hunt and it's chasing after things, the whole city shakes, right? Because it's on Mm. wheels and they're going really, really fast. And our introduction to the Historian's Guild is where they have to run over and prop up that relic of the 21st century. And it's a giant statue of the Minions?
1: Oh yeah, I kind of liked that stuff. That made me laugh. They call them the American gods.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. So, which, again, if you were on the fence about whether or not to see the film, that's the level of yes. humor that this movie is playing at.
1: Is capable of. Doesn't always bother with it, but when it's there, it's quite funny.
0: Uh, I'll politely agree to <laughs> disagree with that statement. <laughs> Mostly because I didn't find it clever. I found it like this is. B- Meta humor done poorly. It's <laughs> bad self-referential humor to me.
1: <laughs> All right, Joe. So if people want to find you to yell at you because the movie is funny, where will they find you?
0: You can find me on Twitter at my remote. That's the letter B. And what about you?
1: i'm at brenna c gray g-r-a-y on twitter and you can always use the hashtag HKHSPod, pod which we troll for compliments on so feel free to use that to <laughs> let us know what you think of the show or if you've got episode suggestions ideas critiques we're we're here for all of it
0: yes and if you have something longer that you want to send to us you can always use the gmail account HKHSPod at gmail.com
1: sounds good and before we go today joe and before we foreshadow next week i feel like we would be remiss if we didn't mention that luke perry died yesterday as far as timing of this recording goes anyway Mm -hmm. and i mention it because talk about a person with such a significant footprint in teen culture Mm -hmm. both in the 1990s and now right between 90210 and riverdale and all the tributes that are pouring out on twitter make him sound like he was a genuinely nice dude so rest in peace luke perry
0: yeah it's, uh, I think, one of those things where people only discover how much someone meant to them mm-hmm. when that person is no longer around to be mm-hmm. a cultural figure. You know, I don't know how many people are watching Riverdale or sort of keeping up on the talk of the 90210 reboot, but obviously his work as an actor captured people's attention and mm-hmm. he was a really important fixture for a lot of people. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So where are we heading next week, Joe?
0: We're going to begin the first of a couple of weeks of anniversaries. So, we are going to move away from the <laughs> speculative stuff, from the dystopian stuff.
1: Thank you Jesus.
0: Right. Well, don't get too excited. We're back in one <laughs> week, but <laughs> No, so we're we're going to revisit the debut of Love Simon from 1 year ago and read Yay. its accompanying text by becky albertini called simon versus the homo sapiens agenda
1: yes becky albertelli i love her i I got that name (laughs) and i'm really excited to read this and i'm really excited to revisit the film it charmed me massively last year so i'm hoping i still feel the same way
0: yes me too i've only seen the film so i'm excited to check out the book and see how it differs you're gonna love it yeah
1: okay okay (laughs) so until then i'll see you on the page everybody
0: and i will see you on the screen
1: Bye bye